Open your Bibles to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets of, toward the very end of the Old Testament, third to last book of the Bible. A few weeks ago, when, uh, after General Assembly, I was able to preach. Uh, we looked at chapter one. Some of you heard that, some of you didn't. Uh, uh, if you remember, the situation in Haggai is that the people of God have returned from uh, exile. They've been judged for their unfaithfulness, but then purified and, and restored and brought back. And they've begun the work of the temple of the Lord when they returned. But after a few short months, they abandoned that work. And then it had been years, almost 17, 18 years since they had uh, done any work on the temple. So the Lord came in Haggai 1 and encouraged the people, stirred them up to begin work on the place of worship, for the name of the Lord to dwell, for uh, the peoples to be discipled, and for the nations to come and hear about the God of Israel. So a very important part of Old Testament worship. And if you remember, the, the work of the Lord was to encourage them to finish that work, to stir them up, and to prioritize the building of his house and say that God's work comes first of all. They were living in fancier houses than they should have. They should have been giving more attention to the work of the Lord. So we we said last time that that would call us and encourage us as God's people now that we as the nations are coming under the rule of Jesus. As God's people, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and to give ourselves to God's work which is the building up of his church. And that's what we are called to do. So as we turn to Haggai chapter 2 this week, uh, before we read it, I just wanted to say this. The Proverbs talk a lot about words and the importance of words, that words give life, uh, that a a well-spoken word is an important thing. Uh, Proverbs like this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And over and over again, it talks about the power of words and encouraging words. In fact, it says that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, that our words have the power to encourage, to give life even. Well, if that's true for us, how much more powerful are the words of the Lord himself that he gives to us? And that's what we have here in this passage in Haggai 2. We have three powerful words of encouragement, three life-giving words. Because even as we saw in Haggai 1, the people began to actually build the temple. They got back to work. But here it is a month later, and already they're struggling to continue that work. And I don't know if uh, you feel this way, but I feel like I can relate to these people. (laughs) That after a few days, I get discouraged that I don't stay with things like I ought to, that I'm easily prone to to getting discouraged. So I don't know if, if you are discouraged in the work that God has called us to do of making disciples of all nations, because that is a huge task, frankly, isn't it? Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That is a huge task, and it's easy to get discouraged. So I don't know where you are this morning. If you have any discouragement, if you uh, look at your own children that you're called to disciple, and you say there are areas where I just do not know how to do this. I don't know how to make them walk faithfully in this area. Or if you've raised your hand dozens of times when we've baptized children here and you say, well, I've raised my hands a lot of times, but frankly, I don't even know where to begin to help these children here in our church to walk faithfully with the Lord. So if you're discouraged in any way and maybe you're just tired, maybe you're just weary, 
Maybe you've served in the church for years and years and years, and it's just, you're, you're tired and you, you feel your strength being sapped away. Uh, we face not only those types of obstacles, we face uh, discouragement from all sorts of other places. Uh, think of our culture in the state of our country where uh, the name of God is not held in very high honor. And, and we have very much a culture of self where we're devoted to our own personal happiness, our own personal uh, desires. And then think of the church in the U.S. where we really struggle. All of us do. We struggle with compromise. We struggle with uh, retreating from the world. Uh, we struggle with, with so many different things, with, with nominalism, with just being a Christian in name only and not having it be something that's very heartfelt. So there's lots of, lots of things that can discourage us, and discouragement can be a very powerful thing. But here comes the Lord in Haggai chapter 2 with three powerful words of encouragement to lead his people forward. We're going to look at those words uh, in order. We're just going to take one, each one at a time. We're not going to read the whole passage. We're just going to read uh, each section and go through it like that. So the first word of encouragement is verses one through nine, and it's an encouragement to keep working in the strength of the Lord. Uh, And then we'll see from verses 10 to 19, an encouragement to seek inner renewal, not simply an outward obedience. And then the final word from verses 20 to 23 is to keep hope in the Davidic line and God's promises to David. So let's read just verses 1 through 9 and look at this first word of encouragement that comes from the Lord that gives life to people like us, people who struggle with discouragement. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, and again, this is one month after the people had begun to rebuild the temple, only, only one month later, they're struggling. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Did you see the discouragement when the people saw how uh, pitiful the beginnings of this temple were? Because it was only 66 years since the former temple was destroyed. So there were some elder men and women who remembered what it was like, the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And when they saw it, they began to weep and mourn and become discouraged. And so the work, as they Uh, began to rebuild as they were opposed. They had opposition, if you read the book of Ezra, from all around. Political opposition from other nations around them. 
They were discouraged. And the command comes in verse 4. Be strong. The Lord says, let's get to it. To everyone, to the leaders, to every single one of you, let's get to work. And notice that that command came with a promise. The promise is at the the end of verse 4. He says, be strong, all you people of the land. And then he says at the very end, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And he references his covenant with them and taking them to be his people when they came out of Egypt. So the Lord gives us here a command, a command that we often feel so inadequate to complete. And yet he says, I'm not asking you to do this in your own strength. I ask you to do this through my power, through my spirit. Work hard, not out of your own resources, but out of mine that I will give you. You have to trust that I'm with you. And notice throughout this passage, did you hear the repetition of the title of the Lord, the Lord of hosts? In fact, one of the shortest books of the Bible, two, two little chapters here. And that title is given to the Lord over and over again. Thirteen times in this short book, he's called the Lord of hosts. Now, that title is significant, but the word hosts could easily be translated armies. He is the Lord of armies. It's a title of power and might. In other words, there is no resource that the Lord does not have. There is no power that he cannot overthrow the opposition that you're facing. There is nothing that can stand in the face of the power of the Lord of hosts. So take courage. I am with you. I am the Lord of hosts. Do not be discouraged. Now, what will the Lord of hosts do? Notice in verse six, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake all nations. There is going to be a work of the Lord that is so powerful that it's as if the the earth itself will tremble and the foundations will be moved. The Lord is that powerful. The powerful display of what the Lord will do will be unparalleled. He said, I will show my power and reverse these circumstances where you are so discouraged and downtrodden and you are I mean, you're subject to a foreign power. You don't even have any autonomy in your own affairs as you did for centuries before. I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake their nations. And in verse seven, he says, look, the nations, they will come and be subservient to you. They will come. They will present their tithes and offerings. Their money will be used to fund the building up of this temple. Their money will be used to produce a discipleship and evangelism and outreach to bring more in to glorify the Lord. And the glory of that temple, he promises in verse 9, the temple that is to come that the Lord will create by his mighty power will actually be greater. It doesn't look like it on the surface now, but that former temple, that, that temple to come, the latter temple, will be greater than the one that came before, the, the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, in the short term, how was how this actually fulfilled? What, now, from, from our point in history, can we say this was fulfilled? Well, we can. In the short term, actually, Ezra 6 records how Darius, the king of Persia, was moved by the Lord to actually give the money from the royal treasury of Persia to give the money to complete the building of this temple. So the, the work, the money of, of the, the nations that belongs to the Lord anyway The Lord moved. The heart of the king was in the hand of the Lord, and he turned it how he wanted to, displaying his power. 
And he took that money from Persia and said, I will use this to build up my temple. So it was fulfilled. But the grandeur and the ultimate fulfillment of what's described here demands not simply this short-term fulfillment, but a, a, a wider view, a, a greater fulfillment. And it's referencing what Dan read from Isaiah 2 and Isaiah uh, 11, that someday all nations would come flowing and streaming into this temple. They would come under the rule of the Lord and come to know him and come to worship him. And the Lord will rule over them. He will judge them, not in the sense of, of giving condemnation, but of giving righteous laws and deciding disputes. That's how it's described. So that the nations enjoy, instead of war, they will beat their, their swords into plowshares. They will be at peace with one another. And the image in chapter 11 of the, the wolf lying down with the lamb and the lion being with the calf and not harming one another, in the context, that's clearly speaking of the nations and the peace that God will bring through his rule. And so that the temple of the Lord will be more glorious than before through his rule over all nations. And we would have to say, even this morning, this is being fulfilled right here in this very room. What did we just do? We just brought our tithes and offerings. Who are we? We are those nations that the Lord is bringing under his rule. So we just witnessed, and that should give us encouragement we should take our discouragement and see what the Lord has said he is doing. He has brought us here. He has brought us under his rule. And he, we are giving our money for the building up of the church, of his kingdom. And so that is happening even in this very room this very morning, just as the Lord of hosts claimed by his power. So be strong, says the Lord. Continue to serve. I don't know how you feel about the work that we've been called to do, what you're taking part in with discipleship and evangelism, whether or not you're discouraged. But are we giving ourselves to that work? And again, if you wish you could see more fruit in your lifetime, do not be discouraged. The Lord is strong. And if you're tired and weary from serving many, many years in the church, remember his strength and his promise. I will be with you, says the Lord. And return to him and ask for strength. Depend upon his spirit. And if you have any doubts about whether the gospel will make an impact on this community, then I again commend you to look at the Lord of hosts and listen to this promise and see what he has said. And let's get to work. The work of discipleship and evangelism is what we're called to do. And let's do it by his power. So that's the first word of encouragement. Second word begins in verse uh, 10. And this is a word of encouragement to seek inner renewal, inner repentance, not simply an outward obedience, an outward repentance. Let's read from verse 10 on. On the 24th day of the ninth month, so this is uh, two months after the message that we just read, so three months after they had begun to rebuild the temple. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? 
The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there, that is what they offer at the temple, is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, there's some difficult things in this passage, but the Lord is using Uh, the teaching that they had received about the law and ceremonial rituals to be uh, performed at the temple about being clean and unclean to basically give us a picture of the current state of the people. Uh, In verses 11 and 12, he is saying, well, if you have something that is ceremonially holy and you touch it to other things, does it automatically convey holiness to those things? And the priests say, well, no, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. And the, the, the point of this is that they would see just because we have begun work on this holy place, does that automatically mean that we ourselves are holy just because we are touching this work and taking part in this work? The Lord is reminding them it doesn't guarantee that inside you are actually pursuing the Lord and actually repenting and having a heart that is full of love and gratitude and awe for him that you are called to have. So your repentance needs to be inner, not simply outer. Although, of course, outward, outward obedience uh, is vital. It's, it's indispensable. But he's saying just because you have begun this outer work, also consider the inner workings of your own heart. And then he goes on uh, and he says, By the way, again, this was a huge problem after the exile. This is a huge problem in our day um, to just have a nominal faith, an outward faith. Uh, Well, we all, you know, I live in Georgia. What do you mean? Of course, I'm a Christian. I live in I live in Georgia. You know, I've gone to church all my life. Of course, I'm a Christian. What do you mean? No, that is not what the Christian faith. Have you embraced in your heart the covenant of the Lord? Have you embraced Christ? From within, that is what we're called to have, an inner faith that manifests itself outwardly, yes. And so they were tempted in this way. I'm from the tribe of Judah. Of course I know the Lord. The Lord's saying, consider your heart. Examine your ways. And then in verse 13, he says, well, again, by way of analogy with ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, he says, look, if there's something unclean like a dead body, if you touch that to other things, what happens? Yes, absolutely. The uncleanness flows when you touch something that's unclean. And in verse 14, he says, look, what you offer there. So they were making offerings at the temple for 18 years while the temple was sitting there uncompleted like like a skeleton, like a like a corpse. He's saying your offerings that you were bringing, were they pleasing to me? They weren't. 
Because everything that was offered there was unclean because you had forsaken me. You had not prioritized me and building the temple to bring my name glory. They didn't seem to care that God was not being worshipped. And so now, as they are beginning to obey the Lord, the Lord's reminding them, continue to examine your heart. And pay attention to the root of the problem, which is your spiritual indifference, your spiritual lukewarmness toward me. So whether you've been involved in building of God's kingdom, maybe you've taught Sunday school all of your life, maybe you're involved in vocational ministry in some way, but you've been involved in the church, the Lord wants these things to be done. But he doesn't want them to be done apart from a heart that is full of love and awe for him. And he reminds them in verses 15 to 17. Remember where it got you serving me in this nominal way. Remember where it got you. I actually set myself against you. I brought covenant curses upon you. Uh, The the things that they uh, suffered, uh, the failure of crop and, and not much produce. Those were listed specifically in the covenant terms in Deuteronomy. And the Lord said, look, if you try to do this without me, if you try to go your own way in life, I will set myself against you even to get your attention, to bring you back, to examine your own heart. And that's exactly what happened. I set myself against you. But then he comes back and he says, now that you've begun this work, do not be afraid. Now I am reversing that curse. I'm taking you out from under discipline And I'm going to bless you from this day forward. I am going to give you more blessing than you know what to do with. But let it lead you to continue to have a heart that loves me, that your actions flow out of this heart of love and awe for me. And so uh, this very message came in the wintertime and there was a winter planting season. They were about to get their hands dirty in sowing their crops. And there was a rainy season that was coming And as they saw the the produce grow and as they saw the rain come down to give life and to give uh, a provision for them, they were to connect this to the goodness and blessing of the Lord that he had lifted this discipline and he was going to be with them. And they were to take that as an encouragement to continue on to walk with the Lord in obedience and also an inner obedience, an inner renewal. So that is the second word of encouragement from the Lord. The third word is the very end of chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Let's read that now together. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So the same day as the one we just read, same, same day that message came, another message came, again, three months after they had begun to rebuild the temple. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to the Zerubbabel governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice again the promise that the power of the Lord will shake, that his power will work and move. And that connects it with 
uh, the, the shaking that was going to happen that was mentioned earlier in the chapter, that all nations would be disrupted, that all nations would, in fact, come and bring their money and, and it would be used to build up the temple. And the Lord would conquer and rule the nations and that Zerubbabel, he promises in verse 23, Zerubbabel would be the signet ring of the Lord. Now, I don't know if any of you have a signet ring. That's something we, we often don't uh, know what that's what does that mean? What is that about? Well, well, before we get to that, remember, first of all, that Zerubbabel is the heir of David. He is the rightful king. He's the descendant of David. And then the signet ring is significant because a signet ring was a symbol of royal authority. When a king ruled and he passed uh, edicts and commands, and as he ruled, he would seal them with that ring. And so it had divine stamp and authority. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, the Davidic heir. And it's not Zerubbabel, you know, just his person necessarily. It's the Davidic line. I am going to work through my promises to David. I have not thrown them off. I've not turned aside from what I promised to David. I am going to rule the world through a descendant of David. I'm going to take you like a ring, a signet ring, and put you on my finger, and I'm going to rule all nations through your authority, through your power. And he says, that's what's going to happen. And he he says, on that day. So it's an undefined, that's kind of prophetic language for a future day that's, that's undefined. When the Lord overthrows the nations, when he shakes the heavens and the earth, It's going to be through the ultimate heir of David that will come. And so this is a renewal of that promise to David that he had given to him 500 years before. And this promise is referenced throughout the scripture. I'll just read you a couple of passages of what this promise to David in his line was all about. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, many of you are familiar with this passage. He says, For to us a child is born. So this is this ultimate heir of David who would rule. To us a son is given, and the government, the rule, will be upon his shoulder. And he goes on in verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. In other words, his rule will fill the entire earth. It will never end. The peace that he brings that his government provides, it will increase. There will be no stopping it. It will cover the whole earth and fill the earth with his glory. So he goes on, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Daniel references the same exact promise. And Daniel was a prophet ministering just uh, a few years before Haggai. And here's the same, the same promise of the same ruler. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The Davidic king will rule and his kingdom will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. This is the story of the whole Bible. It's a story of redemption, a story that God will not cast off sinful people that have rejected him. But through a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, and now through a descendant of Zerubbabel, the Lord will come and bless the nations and reclaim them as his very own. 
Now, this was an important reassurance because think about who Zerubbabel was. Was he the king? He was not even a king. He was a governor of Judah, subject to the power of Darius, king of Persia. And all around them, there were... uh, Darius was actually favorable toward the people. He allowed them to, uh, Cyrus had allowed them to return. He had given, Darius had given them the money and put his stamp of approval upon them reestablishing themselves in the land and building the temple. But all around them, there were hostile nations. And their king, the one that should have been their king, wasn't even a king. He was just a governor. So their fate was tied to the rule of this coming king. And they were not to lose hope that the Lord would accomplish this promise. Now, they were waiting, but for us, the wait is over. Because Jesus has come, as Matthew points out in chapter 1 in his genealogy. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He's the son of Zerubbabel. And he has come and taken his throne. Luke, uh, when Gabriel comes to Mary, do you remember the words that he spoke? This is what he said to her. He, speaking of Jesus, the one she will bear, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's clearly an allusion to Isaiah 9 that we just read. The increase of his government, there will be no end of that. There's a man whose name was John, John Adam. He sailed from Great Britain in 1828 for Calcutta. And he worked there evangelizing, discipling. He even was taking part in the work of revising the New Testament that had been translated into uh, Bengali. And after three short years of work, he, he died. He had left his Uh, A paneled house, so to speak, in Great Britain. He could have had a position in ministry there that would have paid him a wonderful salary. He would have been near his family and his friends. But with tears, he hugged them goodbye and set sail halfway across the globe. Now, why would someone do that? We would say, obviously, the grace of God in saving him had impacted his life. And he was grateful for God saving him. And he knew he was to serve him. And absolutely, I'm sure that is the case. But also, there is this reason. Several years before, as a university student at St. Andrews, he wrote out a list of personal convictions. This is what I believe. And I will read you one of them. Listen to this conviction that he held. I believe in the ultimate spread of the gospel over the whole earth. And it's that its victory shall be universal, that infidelity and false religion shall give way before it, that iniquity shall hide its head, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and that he shall reign forever and ever. It was that conviction and God's covenant promise to reign over the whole earth, through Jesus, the son of David, that stirred him and motivated him to lead a life engaged in building up the kingdom of God. If we here in this room truly believe that, I know we believe that on paper, but if we truly embrace that and ask the Lord to help us embrace it even more, 
Would it make a difference in how we live? Would the Lord even raise up missionaries and evangelists to go forward from Old Peachtree? Would we more and more give ourselves to the work of discipleship and evangelism here? I hope it is real to each and every one of us that every obstacle, every discouragement, every difficulty that we deal with will be overthrown and that Jesus will renew all things. And he is the Lord of hosts who has come to reign. And so we need to pray that the Lord would use his rule, these promises to David to fuel our service in his kingdom. And that these three encouraging words would dispel any discouragement that we have. And that we would be ready. We would get our hands dirty in the work that the Lord has called us to do for the glory of our King. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are on your throne. You have risen from the dead and ascended. You have taken a position of all power and authority. And that is a hopeful reality for us, your people, who are so often overcome with weakness, discouragement, stubbornness. And Lord, I pray that these encouraging words would motivate us, that they would fuel the fire of your people to make disciples of all nations, to command, to teach those around us to obey everything that you've commanded us to do for the glory of your kingdom that will never die, that will never pass away. It will not be handed to another, but will go on forever and ever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.